Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the podcast that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin. Your branding and website are the first things your audience will see. In the ever-expanding world of ICOs and blockchain startups, you need to stand out from the pack. OnRamp is a full-service creative and design agency that will help you amplify your brand with the perfect website, logo, collateral, or custom design project. Get big results in no time by visiting thinkonramp.com. Abra is the easiest way to invest in crypto with 28 cryptocurrencies and Bit10, the only crypto index product available to everyone. Get started with $25 in Bitcoin at abra.com slash unconfirmed. My guest today is Emin Gunsir, Associate Professor at Cornell and the co-director at the Initiative for Cryptocurrencies and Smart Contracts, otherwise known as IC3, and the founder of AVA. Welcome, Gun. Uh, very nice to be here, Laura. Thank you. So when I initially asked you on the show, it was because I wanted you to give us your highlights from last week's DevCon 4. And even though this episode was going to come out a week later, last week, I, I really wanted to devote that episode to the Bitcoin, to the anniversary of the, of the Bitcoin white paper. And so I did an episode back then with Charlie Lee. It's a great episode for people who missed it. You should check it out. Um, however, before we dive into DevCon 4, now with some news yesterday, I really wanted to chat about this thing that happened, which was that the SEC and the founder of Ether Delta reached a settlement over Ether Delta or this founder operating an unregistered exchange. And Ether Delta is a so-called decentralized exchange for people who don't know that. However, the SEC's argument was, you know, this guy was pretty much the person behind this so-called decentralized exchange. And they were saying that through the trading of ERC-20 tokens, which is is what people could do on Ether Delta along with Ether, that he was allowing people to trade unregistered securities and was doing so even after their DAO report, which specifically cited that that was a risk for, for so-called exchanges. So what did you make of this news? So my initial reaction, my quick gut reaction was that this is actually a very dangerous slippery slope. The thing that I worry about the most is the culpability uh, of developers uh, for decentralized applications. So in my view, code is speech and I should be able to write the code for anything. It used to be that the government used to uh, prohibit uh, encryption, for example, and um, and it was illegal to to write about encryption algorithms for a while, and it was a crazy universe. And in the same sense, it should be possible to code up any old thing you like that does anything you want. Um, it's after all just code. And um, so uh, to be held responsible for code that you you put out there uh, that serves a function on a blockchain would be very 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 dangerous. 
Now, that is not strictly the case here. So it's a nuanced, complicated case, and uh, there are multiple things happening. So Ether Delta is billed as a decentralized exchange, but it's not quite decentralized. There is a website that you go to. There's a front end. There is a person behind the scenes. There's a person who takes a cut, and there's a person who adver- who's advertised as the person running the show. So to the extent that the SEC is prosecuting this person, um, because he is obviously running the show, then that's okay. But it is a dangerous precedent if it continues, if if SEC continues down this path, then at the end of it, we have a universe where, um, you know, the SEC might want to come after people for making code available. And that would be a very, very dangerous uh, situation. I hope we're not there. Uh, We're not going to end up there. We're not there yet. And um, so I had mixed reactions. My initial reaction was, okay, this could be bad. Um, Then I calmed down a little bit and decided, okay, you know, um, he was running the show. It wasn't quite decentralized. And after all, the um, the punishment that they came up with was quite soft. So um, they, uh, I think it was essentially a slap on the wrist and, and, and an agreement between the, uh, the, the this, uh, founder and the, uh, the SEC that he sort of uh, uh, pulled back and, and, uh, and sort of, uh, you know, st- st- stand down essentially. And so, um, so that sounded like an okay compromise in the end to me. Yeah, something that I found interesting was they made a point in their report to note that, for instance, if there were questions about the exchange, then he was the one that was answering them on Reddit and on his Twitter and and just through other things. So they really, you know, made the point of kind of proving that it wasn't decentralized, despite Mm -hmm. uh, maybe having that designation. However, I did want to flag also, I mentioned this in the 10-year anniversary of the Bitcoin white paper episode I did on Unchained last week, where the CF, one of the CFTC commissioners, Brian Quintence, did make a speech recently where he kind of walked through a, a hypothetical scenario in which a prediction market would be created that would you know, I don't know, be like an assassination market or, or, or I, I actually forget what the exact example was, but it was something that was illegal. And the way he walked through it, he did ultimately come down to this conclusion that it could be the people who write that code that would be held responsible. So I do think that that idea is out there. And I know that mm-hmm. shortly after he made that speech, Coin Center did write a blog post making the point that you made that this is a dangerous way to go. So we'll absolutely. See. No, this, yeah, this, this idea rears its head uh, all the time. I think that, uh, uh, you know, the powers that be will want to, to keep developers, uh, responsible for, for code they put out. And, uh, and so that's, that's really dangerous. It is definitely out there. That's my main worry. Uh, on your previous uh, point, I do want to mention uh, something that, you know, your listeners are a very tech savvy audience and, um, uh, uh, but not all of them may have lived through the, uh, the file, the peer to peer file sharing episode. So in the early 2000s, uh, there was a, a spate of prosecutions and the bulk of the prosecution, uh, rest of, of, sorry, let's, let me try to explain what happened. Prosecutions of people who developed code for peer to peer file sharing and, these lawsuits actually went after these, what I would call sort of secondary sources of evidence. So clearly people were sharing files. Clearly it was peer to peer. The developers aren't on the path. And in many cases, the developers were not even financially profiting from the entire episode. But, uh, but in court, uh, you know, the, the people who prosecuted these cases 
ended up, whether civil or criminal, because there were different kinds of lawsuits, but in all of them, uh, they ended up using uh, sort of various accoutrements or various sort of bits and pieces of evidence, private communications between uh, the devs themselves, um, messages on public bulletin boards and so forth uh, that devs tend to write about their intentions, about what they plan to do and so forth. And some of these were damning. And uh, and I got a whiff of that this morning as I read through uh, this case with Ether Delta, where, uh, you know, the uh, the sort of the, the messages and, and, and the activities of a person uh, were, be, were used to, to, to hint at his intent and, and therefore uh, was, was used as a leverage point uh, against him. So, um, you know, um, one of the takeaways from this is if you're going to do anything in a gray zone, do what Satoshi did and uh, be cautious and hide your identity um, uh, and or maintain some distance and separation because, you know, things you might have said in one context may be taken out of that context and used against you as well. Yeah. And I, having recently read American Kingpin by Nick Bilton, I don't know if I would even say that the first route is safe because Ross Ulbricht did think that he had hidden his identity, but there are digital breadcrumbs that we're leaving all over the place. And so, you know, eventually he was caught. And for people who haven't read the book, I really recommend it actually, because it's kind of amazing how they caught him while he was logged in as the Dread Pirate Roberts. And so that was really crucial to their case against him. Right. There's a, there's a great TV drama or, or a great movie to be had there, Laura. But um, I do want to mention one thing. We have a student here, a PhD student at Cornell. And um, so when he was an undergrad, he, uh, he was just checking out uh, uh, Silk Road and he himself noticed uh, some security holes in Silk Road. So it wasn't, uh, Ross's OPSEC was, uh, was not the best to be had. And, um, and so, so he, he wrote it to Ross, by the way. He wrote a message saying, Hey, these are the things you should fix. And, uh, Ross then, uh, uh, asked him if he wanted a job offer. And, um, <laughs> then there was some kind of a job interview <laughs> and he got a job offer, which was, uh, uh compensated for in terms of, uh, I think the offer was some money plus all the, all the drugs he can personally consume or something like that. Oh my um, God. So, sorry, I should not say, I should not say Ross. It was DPR. So, uh, so anyhow, so there is there is that with the DPR. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it was Ross. If you read the book, you're, you're gonna. <laughs> <laughs> well, the courts courts have decided it's Ross, right? So. Yeah. Well, yeah. Although what you said at the beginning about his OPSEC being bad, it, that is also covered in the book about how he really did not know what he was doing. It's kind yeah. of entertaining. Well, okay. So I do want to discuss DevCon 4, but first let's take a quick word for a, a let's, ha, I can't even speak today. A quick word from our fabulous sponsors. OnRamp is a full service creative and design agency that has helped numerous companies, including many in the blockchain and crypto space, maximize their brand awareness, gain traction, and accelerate growth. Whether you're a startup company launching a new brand or an established brand exploring a new campaign, OnRamp has you covered. OnRamp has a passion for boosting business results and can help with everything from logo and website design to full creative execution. Focus on your core technology and leave the rest to OnRamp. To learn more and see how they've helped passionate entrepreneurs achieve their dreams, go to thinkonramp.com. I'm speaking with Emin Gunsir of Cornell. All right. So why don't we start with kind of your take on the highlights of DevCon 4? And then I know you're excited about this new consensus algorithm. So why don't, why don't you give the overview and then dive right into what you're excited about? 
Sure. Um, for me, there was just one takeaway from DevCon 4, and that was the sheer amount of energy in that room. So um, I think there were 300 and, no, no, what am I saying? 3,320 something people who had registered. And with all the people crashing the conference and, you know, trading badges and stuff, uh, it was, it was clearly a very, very large crowd. So the area is vibrant. Um, the bear market will do its bear thing. You know, we've lived through many bear markets, many, many uh, of them deeper than this one. So I actually don't understand all that anxiety that I see out there. I mean, I understand the reasons why uh, people who got in recently would be would be anxious. But we've seen this, and in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing. The area is vibrant. That's what I care about the most is the influx of bright young minds. If that's happening to a coin and community, then that coin and community is healthy. And um, uh, communities that have sealed themselves off, that are closed, um, that have an established power structure that's unchangeable, a vision that's sort of whatever it is, it's it's fixed and static, um, in my view, are neither interesting nor are they destined for greatness. So it's wonderful to see that crypto as a whole um, is... Uh, is getting all as the the attention that it's getting the bear market so so the side note on this the bear market has been good in the sense that it's cleaned out some of the get rich quick types so at this devcon compared to the last one i saw fewer people uh peddling icos fewer people there to just push the next next thing uh to you know turn some tokens into cash and disappear without delivered products so that was fantastic what else did I see? I think most of my observations were social. Um, it was wonderful that Ethereum folks um, invited uh, all sorts of people. Zcash folks were there. You know, Quorum people were there. I was there talking about Avalanche um, and um, a number of my some, my colleague, Elaine, she was there talking about her coin. So um, there were quite a few people uh, there talking about, you know, different approaches to this whole cryptocurrency uh, puzzle that are not necessarily on Ethereum's path. So it wasn't a self-serving conference. And I have to give a lot of cr um, credit to Vitalik, Aya, and the rest of the folks in the Ethereum community for being inclusive and for realizing one crucial fact, which is we either rise together or we sink together. And I thoroughly believe this. I, I think the space is really big and no single coin can be all of it for everyone. It's not going to be Bitcoin. I'm sorry to say, and I know you have a lot of uh, viewers and listeners who you know, firmly believe this and they've been conditioned to think that there can only be one winner. Bitcoin is not going to be the only payment system. It's not going to be the only currency. It's just not going to happen ever. And, um, you know, it's going to have to play in an ecosystem. And, uh, and so likewise, uh, Ethereum will not be the only one. And, uh, and there will be many, many other, uh, systems that are going to offer different features. It, one thing cannot be everything to everyone. It has to necessarily make choices. And so I'm really excited about the, the amount of exploration going on in this space. And, uh, and it's wonderful to see that vibrancy out there. It's wonderful to see all these people going at all of these problems simultaneously, whether it's scale, security, um, you name it, you know, identity. Uh, it's just all being explored at the same time. So, um, so I was really, really energ energized by the entire um, uh, episode in Prague. It was a fantastic conference overall. And, um, and I left thinking, okay, this is going to be, I don't actually really care if the market crashes to zero and everything I'm doing um, never sees the light of day. I will have at least had uh, a lot of fun 
uh, developing uh, lots of exciting technology because this is a good crowd. That's how I felt. And that's probably the most positive thing that anybody can say about any meeting. I love it. Yeah, I love that positivity. It sounds great. For people who are interested in hearing from a Bitcoin maximalist, <laughs> uh, I did do an episode with Jimmy Song on my podcast, Unchained. And then if you're interested in hearing from an Ethereum maximalist, Jimmy Song and Joe Lubin came on my show. Joe Lubin is the Ethereum maximalist, and they were trying to finalize their bet that has still not been finalized. However, um, you will hear there are different arguments on either side. Uh, although I kind of agree with Gun that at least from the way things are going so far, it is probably likely we're not going to see just one coin because already we're not seeing just one coin. Um, exactly. Which brings us to your project. So why don't you tell us about Avalanche? Sure. Um, so something pretty interesting happened this May. So uh, a team calling itself Team Rocket dropped on IPFS a PDF containing the description of a new consensus algorithm family. So it's not just a new consensus algorithm, but a family of algorithms. And really what it is, is a completely different approach to consensus, the, the problem of consensus. Now, let me try to put this in context. Uh, the consensus problem has been identified going all the way back to 70s and then formalized and properly written up in the 80s. So at least since the 80s, this has been a, a topic of formal inquiry. So what's that? That's 40 something years. Okay. And in those 40 years, we only had two families uh, or two classes of, of uh, consensus protocols. We have what I call the classical family, mostly studied or initiated by my colleague uh, Barbara Liskov at MIT, who just retired, and my colleague Leslie Lamport, who, and both of whom have Turing Awards. And um, so there have been hundreds of papers on this family of protocols. And, uh, uh, you know, these people might have heard of, you know, Byzantine consensus. Um, they might have heard of, uh, you know, Paxos, uh, Byzantine Paxos, etc., a PBFT. Um, so in the classical domain, what you have is essentially algorithms that require you to know exactly who are your validators. Essentially, think of it as a set of senators in a room. You know exactly who they are. I know exactly who they are. And the algorithms all work the same way. I write to a large enough quorum of them. So I write to, let's say, 67 of them. You read from a large group, say 67 of them yourself. And then the algorithm guarantees that even if a third of the people are, are evil, a third of our senators are evil, 33 of them are evil, my intersection with what I wrote and what you read is at least 34. And therefore, there's at least one honest guy who's going to ferry my messages uh, from me to you and who's going to inform you that, hey, Gun already spent that money or, you know, in the other direction, uh, that money is available to be spent. You can have it appropriately. So this is sort of the, the general lay of the land, the classical protocols, and uh, they're used everywhere um, in permissioned blockchains. So um, uh, Hyperledger uses it, Corda uses it, Cosmos uses it. Uh, when Casper goes online, Casper is very much in the classical fold. So uh, these systems are, um, you know, they're, they're fragile and, uh, and they're hard to set up. You and I need to necessarily agree on 
who those hundred people are. And uh, if there are discrepancies, then the proofs fall apart, right? If I write to a group of 67 people in a room of 100, and your idea of who should be in that room is slightly different, then we don't necessarily have the necessary overlap. And if we don't have the necessary overlap, these protocols immediately collapse. The, uh, the guarantees fall apart if the intersection isn't of the right size. So that's classical. Um, Nakamoto came at this, and then he looks at this and he says, look, this is all great and all, but um, but it requires typically a permissioning step. So to achieve this, uh, this unanimity of view, uh, we typically have to decide a priori who's in our set. There's a permissioning step. So he says, don't do it this way. Let's do it via this Nakamoto consensus protocol that is very familiar to your, reader, to, to your listeners. And so what they do is... Um, uh, you essentially do a lottery and a miner wins the lottery and says, let me, let me encode for you what happened in the last 10 minutes. Okay. So he dictates, uh, because he's the lottery winner. And that's sort of the caricaturized simplified version of Nakamoto consensus. It's very nice in every way because it's open, except it's limited in scale. It has very, very, uh, high latency, you know, 10 minutes to first confirmation, 60 minutes to actual assurance. So it's really a, a system that, that cannot really support um, what it purports to support, right? So the dream is really amazing, but, you know, of world currency, this and that. But if Venezuela were to switch to it tomorrow, then every adult gets to transact uh, once every 36 days. So that's really not going to happen for us. You know, that we need a better technology. We, we, we've seen the proof of concept, but we need something better. So it's against this backdrop. We've only had two in 40-something years, and the third one just got dropped last May. And the third one is, is this new protocol called Avalanche. And it works entirely differently and has a completely different mechanism for why it's correct. Which is? Um, sure. Let me try to uh, to give some insight into how Avalanche works. So, um, okay. So um, here is what it tries to do. Avalanche tries to set up a, a, a meta-stable system, a system that's purposefully designed so that the people in the room, the people who are trying to make a decision, will not get stuck with some kind of a, with, with an in-between state. They will either go one way or the other, um, but ultimately they'll go to one of the two extremes. And uh, for those of you who are physically uh, sort of minded, who, who like physics and so forth, um, it's a system where the lowest energy state is a decision. And the entire system tries to find its way down to that. And it does it in a manner that resembles an avalanche. It's, it starts tumbling and it starts growing and growing. And then finally, it's, it arrives at a, at a decision. So um, just to illustrate how it works, let, let's, let's take a, an actually challenging uh, scenario. So here's, here's what we want to do. We want to achieve consensus right, like everyone else. Um, but we want to do it at large scale. So we want to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of participants, if not millions of participants. So suppose we're in a really large stadium and we don't want to, to require that everybody agrees on who's in the stadium. That's not possible. Okay. So, um, so I have a fuzzy idea of, let's say we're in the Maracaibo stadium in Brazil, really big, world's biggest. And, uh, you know, I know a bunch of the people in the stadium, but not everyone. You know a bunch of the people in the stadium, but obviously not everyone. And so we want to achieve consensus. And if we were using classical, we would talk to everyone. And in fact, everyone would talk to everyone else. It would be N squared. If we were to use Nakamoto, there'd be like a, a lottery, you know, the kiss cam points at you and then you tell everyone what happened. And that's okay. But then we have to have these, this mining equipment. We'd have to have, you know, we'd, have, we'd be uh, constantly uh, consuming energy. We'd be melting the polar ice caps. And if you don't care about the polar ice caps, 
Well, you know, you know, some people don't, right? It's like, okay, I don't care about the polar bears. I do. But if you don't care about the polar bears, you're leaking value out of your store of value system. So that's that's also not good. So um, uh, so that's the, that would be the Nakamoto idea. So here's how Avalanche works in contrast. And it's very, very simple to understand. It's going to work in multiple rounds. And in every round, we're going to do the same thing. And uh, and that thing is very simple. We're going to sample a tiny portion of the people in the audience, and we're going to put our weight behind them. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask a small number of you, five people. So you pick five people at random, and you say, hey, you, 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 and you, uh, and you. Um, what color, you know, we're supposed we're making a decision between red and blue, you know, Alice pays Bob or Alice pays Charlie, okay? So uh, we need to pick one. And, um, you know, which which one do you prefer? And the answers will come back, you know, and people will say, I heard Alice pay Bob first. I, I heard Alice pay Charlie first. And there will be some kind of a uh, some kind of a set of responses. It might be, you know, let's say, let's generalize it and use colors. It might be red, 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 blue, red. Okay, so that was a lot of reds. So if that's what I hear, um, then I will make my own color red. Okay, and from that point on, if anybody asks me what color I like, I will say red. And uh, you will do the same thing, and you might also sample reds or you might sample blues. The worst case scenario, starting uh, the protocol, would be a 50-50 split. And people should be able to see if they think about it a little bit. After one round, the chances of that stadium still being 50-50 split are pretty minuscule. It's just incredibly unlikely. And if it is still at 50-50, then the next round will take care of it. But most likely what will happen at the end of the first round is we will have a slight overrepresentation of one color. Maybe it's red, maybe it's blue, it doesn't matter. But we will have picked one of the colors and we will have gone in that direction. Now, if you have a stadium full of, you know, initially it was 50-50, but after one round it's 51-49, 51% red, 49 blue. At the end of the second round, it's much more likely to go red. Why? Because it's 51% red. There's a slight uh, overpopulation of reds, which will create a slight bigger, slightly bigger overpopulation of reds. So at the end of the second round, you might have 53 versus 47% uh, red-blue mix. And after the end of the third round, you will have even larger and larger, and suddenly you'll pass through uh, one in interesting uh, point called the point, uh, the the uh, the phase shift point, where a Byzantine presence can't pull you back, and uh, then there is another point which is the point of no return, after which you can safely commit. That so many people in the audience are red uh, that uh, they, everyone's guaranteed to pick red. So the math in this paper um, shows that after a very modest number of rounds, on the order of 13 to 17, depending on how big your uh, your population is, after a modest number of rounds, you will have all these people who've done, done these uh, rounds in the stadium holding up a card on their forehead, and they're looking around wondering uh, if everybody else is done, and everyone will be holding, after 17 rounds, everyone will be holding up the same red card. And that's a pretty amazing result. Um, I've had a number of colleagues do simulations and so forth. Of course, we have our own and come back to me and said, you know, that 17 number is incredibly conservative. This thing achieves uh, unanimity very, very quickly and so forth. So uh, so those are all true. But the nice thing is it's it's amazingly fast. It combines the best of Nakamoto with the best of classical. So 17 rounds of five messages is 85 packets. I can send 85 packets very, very fast. 
Um, so I didn't have to talk to everybody in the stadium. It's not N squared. So, and you achieve finality within a second to two, within one to two seconds. It supports tens of thousands of transactions and it's com- completely green and quiescent. When there's nothing to do, you do nothing. Uh, you don't have to constantly run miners. You don't have to be in bed with the local power authority. You're, you don't have to leak any value out of your store of value. And it's incredibly decentralized. So you, me, and everyone else can participate in the serialization of transactions. It's not just for Jihan Wu's of the world. And mm-hmm. Jihan is amazing at a lot of things. He, he knows how to make hardware. But when it comes to serializing transactions, he's the same as me. And, um, and see, he's the same as you. Everybody else is essentially identical on this front. And, and if you look at what's happening on the ground with proof-of-work coins, uh, they become centralized. They've become centralized just by virtue of the, the mining game. So Bitcoin ha- only has 19 mining pools. Ethereum has 11 that are responsible for uh, the vast majority, 99 point something percent of the blocks on the blockchain. So um, so this is, uh, it's a funny game. It's become centralized in the hands of industrialized miners. And the number of players are very small. EOS, for example, has 21 block producers. Algorand is trying to go for 25. Uh, Casper, when it goes live, is going to have 64 uh, validators in a cycle. I mean, these are tiny numbers. And Avalanche promises to, uh, uh, to, to take these numbers up by three orders of magnitude. Interesting. Okay, so we're totally running out of time, but I just want to wrap this up with one last thing, which is, so I'm guessing that this is the consensus algorithm that you're going to use in your new project, Ava? Yeah. So if I may say a few words about Ava's, the rest of the Ava design. So Ava is based on Avalanche, um, and we're working on it uh, here at my company called Ava Labs. And um, uh, so Ava is going to be building on this foundation. And um, I'm not going to bore you and your audience with the various different features that Ava has. Um, but there's one feature that I do want to discuss because it's uniquely enabled by what uh, the Avalanche consensus protocol allows us to do. So, um, and it's this, it's governance uh, of a different kind. So anytime anybody designs a consensus protocol, they have to pick certain parameters. So um, Satoshi had to pick the emission curve, the minting rate for the coins. So in Ava, all of these parameters can be actually crowdsourced. So uh, for example, what's going to happen in Ava is that it's going to be a pr- proof of stake protocol. And um, you know, you'll stake, suppose you have a thousand dollars and you stake and you know, well, you stake for a short period of time, say a week, and you, you make back some additional coins that will come out to some interest rate R. Okay, so let's say default value is two percent, you know, to compensate for lost coins. So um, what you can do in Ava is you can say, hey guys. Um, we are, we're printing too fast. Okay. And we should, we should slow it down so as to buoy up the price or we're printing too slowly. Um, and, uh, and we should mint more, uh, more coins to get more people to, to join the system and stake. So either way, you can put this up for crowd adoption. And depending on what the crowd is willing to live with, you may be able to pass it. If there is social consensus, Ava is able to find that point at which, um, at which, uh, uh, the social consensus exists, and it can then change the key parameter, one of the most crucial parameters of the system, uh, to to follow what the crowd's like. Mm, this sounds super interesting. It, it is one of the many new governance projects that are coming online, so I guess we'll see how it plays out. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us a 
a recap of DevCon and also giving us a preview of your new coin. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about the topics we discussed, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of your podcast episode. New episodes of Unconfirmed come out every Friday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Galapali, Fractal Recording, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Les. Thanks for listening.